forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual has a Patreon. Like we all have Patreons, everyone at least who lives in the society who is trying to eat food and live indoors. Um, we're all supplementing. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and become a supporter. We'll be relaunching the bonus episodes very soon now that I know or think I know what I'm doing with those things. But we also have a blog and various other rewards for gifts and favors. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. What are we going to do with middle-aged white women? I don't usually use phrases like white feminism because I like accuracy in language. And it's not so much whiteness as it is power or obliviousness that sort of drives people to behave in the ways that get sort of labeled under white feminism. And yet, so, so many of the people who are behaving this way are indeed middle-aged white women. I have been entranced by the Jill Soloway memoir fiasco. The excerpts that have been posted online are absolutely hilarious. And there does seem to be a problem with contemporary feminism where someone can just sort of declare themselves the spokesperson of a specific demographic and all of a sudden like they're just taken seriously in that way it should be there should have been some sort of feminist riot when Jill Soloway declared herself the spokesperson of feminism there does seem to be a more interesting pushback to Jill Soloway's new declaration of being a spokesperson for trans and non-binary people but at the moment, the fact that this behavior is allowed and encouraged within the feminist community is interesting. But we are here not to talk about Jill Soloway, although I could for hours because she is fascinating. Um, we are here to talk about Lauren Greenfield. Lauren Greenfield has been a documentarian and has been responsible for some very interesting work, including the anorexia documentary Thin, and then The Queen of Versailles, her kind of breakout documentary about the seagulls who were trying to build the largest private residence in the United States modeled after Versailles during the economic collapse. And her work has been very interesting, has been very nuanced, and yet she has this new movie out called Generation Wealth, where she tries to position herself as a kind of expert on the subject of wealth and celebrity. And the movie doesn't really hang together. It doesn't really have a central thesis or central idea other than she wants to sort of become a spokesperson for a moment. And it's not earned. She's just sort of doing it out of ego or, you know, whatever whatever goes on in the in the minds of that specific type of um, wealthy, prestigious, powerful white woman. So I invited Eileen Giselle, who is a poet and a film critic, to come onto the show and talk about Lauren Greenfeld and Generation Wealth with me, and to talk about these portrayals of 
neoliberal feminism, and yes, actually, white feminism. When I was uh, much younger, uh, I became sort of entranced with uh, the documentary Thin, which I think was on HBO, which was my first introduction to Lauren Greenfield. Um, And I think it was like that was peak eating disorder culture that there were so many eating disorder documentaries and memoirs and uh, personal essays and teen magazines and everything. And, and it did seem like Lauren Greenfield, that was the right move for her to sort of make her career was to make a documentary about about anorexia. Um, but I have so many very clear memories of that movie because having watched it at sort of the perfect time as a teenager who I think I, think I wanted to have an eating disorder. Um because of all of this eating disorder culture that I was consuming, this idea of having anorexia seemed really glamorous to me, um, which is probably a whole other conversation. But um, but yeah, so Thin was like my first introduction to uh, Lauren Greenfield. Um, but I have so many, I have I have so much conflict in my brain about what I think about her work. Um, so let's just start with. <laughs> Um, you know, what, what's your reaction to her work? Um, what was your introduction to her? Um, yeah, let's start there. Okay. So Finn was also, I mean, I really enjoyed that documentary. I did not watch it in the early 2000s when it came out. Um, I had heard of it. It was one of those, it was one of those movies that women's magazines always had a little blurb about, I just remember the image of the DVD um, or the poster pretty uh, vividly. But um, I guess my introduction to Lauren Greenfield was actually fairly recent. Over the last couple of years, Generation Wealth was her uh, photography exhibition. And so I had heard of her for a long time. And when I saw, I didn't actually see the photographs in person, but I saw that there was going to be a book um, and that there were these exhibitions um, of her, I guess, 20 years or 25 years of work chronicling obsession with wealth, like a culture obsessed with wealth. So um, when the movie was coming out, I knew I would want to see it and also that I would want to talk to her. And so in preparing to talk to Lauren Greenfield this past summer, I watched um, Thin, I watched uh, Queen of Versailles, and just familiarized myself more with her uh, as a director and as a photographer. And I, I share, I think, a type of ambivalence about just what she represents. Um, because on the one hand, I feel like Thin is a really, I, mean, I think it's a it really indicts the system of healthcare that kind of patronizes and at least in that movie is, is just extremely doctrinaire in its policies towards the women in the, the treatment center. Um, so it becomes this kind of, I don't know, it was a movie that I thought, it was a documentary that I thought helped expose the fact that yes, these women are, um, 
obsessed with thinness in a way that is unhealthy and sometimes unimaginable to probably most people, but their desire for autonomy, I think is very relatable and their desire to get out of this really controlling, uh, facility was really relatable to me. And I found that I felt like Greenfield is best when she lets the story of the characters just unfold and doesn't really impose too much of herself into the narrative. And I think in that movie, she doesn't like she's there clearly. Um, but she has a very fly on the wall way of being present. And I think that Queen of Versailles does as well. Um, and I think that in a way, Generation Wealth, I understand why she imposed herself into the movie and had her own narrative be a big part of it. But I think that, I think it works, but it also doesn't. So some of my, I mean, we can talk about Generation Wealth, um, specifically, but overall I, I enjoy the movie, but I also felt like there were big problems with it. Um, especially towards the end. Um, and when I decided to write about it, it was because I felt like it was in keeping like implicitly a lot of the character arcs of the women in the film felt in keeping with writing that you had published about neoliberal feminism that, um, Andy Ziesler had published that there had been more out there in terms of what, what it means to be a feminist and also how feminist rhetoric can really cloak materialistic and, and even mercenary tendencies. Yeah. Generation wealth I thought was kind of a mess. Um, and I was really disappointed because I liked uh, the Queen of Versailles so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I didn't understand what, why there was so much of her in in the film. And also it didn't seem like the film actually sort of cohered to the theme that she was sort of trying to impose on it. It, it seemed like the stories were much more complicated than just sort of like, um, striving for wealth and power but by sort of deciding that she was going to do a movie about sort of wealth and greed um, the stories weren't allowed to they came out a little twisted they came out a little heavy handed um, and I wasn't sure how things were supposed to be relating to one another um, but yeah the the insertion of her into the story where it becomes um I guess the idea being right that she has also wanted these things and is, and is sort of trying to understand her own desire for these things, for wealth and, and so on. But then I don't know, like it comes off as she's, she's not willing to take it to a dark place or take it to a revealing place. <laughs> right. She, she wants oh, to look good. Yes. Yeah. No. Oh, I mean, that's my main criticism of the movie. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I had like 20 minutes to speak with her and I didn't bring up my own, I don't know, misgivings with the film. Um, I maybe did indirectly some of the questions I asked, but I felt like maybe the one of the reasons she put herself into the movie is that the last 20 minutes is devoted to this idea that the way that all of us and, and the characters featured in the film, no matter how different they are, the way that all of them can kind of I don't know, regain a sense of self or escape this mad uh, accumulation of wealth or the desire for it 
is to get married and have children and then have like a really great relationship with your husband and your kids Mm -hmm. or your wife and your kids. So like the entire last 20 minutes is, is virtually a montage of nuclear family I don't know, Hallmark moments. Yeah. And like Lauren Greenfield's anniversary is the kind of the pinnacle of that. But you also have like her friend Gimo and his genius daughter, who's got a full scholarship to Cornell. You have, um, I don't know, like a picture of an infant suckling. That's like the newborn. And then later on the newborn's looking at fish and like the music changes dramatically from this kind of, circusy music that she also used uh i think to great effect in queen of versailles where there's this kind of uh unsettling circusy backdrop music during most of the film but then it shifts in the last 20 minutes to this real like lifetime music like hallmark moments between family and i, I guess i feel like it's kind of, it, it it suggests implicitly that okay, well, we have this huge problem. We have this sickness as a culture, but we can, we can get out of it by, by just focusing on our kids and focusing on our spouses. And because that's what Lauren Greenfield, I guess, did, that narrative is of her own is imposed upon this like, larger narrative where all, almost all of the characters in the movie are in this kind of cozy nuclear family moment at the end. Um, and I think that it's problematic because I mean, the wedding industrial complex, the baby industrial complex, like all of those things are tied into wealth obsession in a lot of ways. Like, it's not like, I don't know. I don't feel like marriage and family is necessarily an escape from this mandate to accumulate. I think in a lot of cases, it's the opposite. Yeah, and that's been so much of the uh, the language of this sort of neoliberal feminism that has taken over, like this sort of lean-in feminism of have the perfect marriage, have the perfect job, have the perfect, you know, and it's accumulation of a different kind. Um, yeah. And it's and it's, sa- it's the same sort of like flashing to society of look how successful I am. You're just doing it <laughs> with the perfect husband rather than, you know, the yacht or whatever. And it seemed particularly like, I don't know, sinister is maybe too big of a word, but, um, you know, there was the storyline throughout of the woman who was having plastic surgery and then her daughter committed suicide. But there was this sort of implication that her plastic surgery had somehow caused her daughter's depression and insecurity. Um and their financial precarious situation because she went into debt in order to get it. Like there was this weird blaming thing that was happening through that entire storyline. And so for them to have like the end be in this, you know, well, family is all that really matters. Yeah. <laughs> After that whole story, I was like, that's a little mean. <laughs> that's a little. No, I mean, and she doesn't show up at the end. I guess she's like the one, she's the outlier yeah. in the movie who's who's and it's funny because at the beginning when when Kathy I think that character's name is when she says that she's she was going to pursue this really radical transformation in Brazil um via plastic surgery she said that she was doing it because she thought that that handling or confronting her own body image issues was the biggest gift she she should she could give to her daughter so she she took this thing she was doing herself and then said she was doing it 
to make her daughter feel better about her. I don't know. It just felt like a really twisted way to justify something like that. But then ultimately also blame the plastic surgery for her daughter's um, really tragic uh, demise. So I, I just, I don't know that whole, that whole, I mean, I think that what you're saying is, is, um, is true about Lauren Greenfield doesn't let it actually get ugly as far as how her own participation in this culture and, and obsession with this culture as well has, um, has been damaging, you know, like there's this, there's a whiff of it at times, but then, you know, at the end she's reconciling with her mom and her two sons are seem to be, you know, more or less okay and hyper successful and her husband supporting her. And it just, it, it, it kind of, I don't know, it did feel, especially towards the end, like she was trying to conflate her own, um, her own situation with those of her characters, but, but in a way that didn't really work. I don't think. Yeah. I think that kind of what made thin interesting to me was a sense of ambivalence, like a both repulsion and attraction to this eating disorder. Um, And not just the eating disorder itself, but the sort of, um, control like the the ability to control one's sort of body and desires and to to the point of almost of death right um and you know it's left much more um uh much more out of the narrative until generation wealth where she talks about being you know a pudgier uh child and teenager and, and so on um but that sort of attraction repulsion, it's rather than sort of letting that tension be in within and within the story, but also like sort of unspoken throughout the story, um, she wants to, I guess, prove something to the audience or position herself in a specific way um, of, well, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know what I'm trying to say at, the, at this particular moment, but she breaks the ambivalence and, or she sort of tries to hide it or disguise it and, by well, sort of like, yeah, yeah through this, this kind of rejection. It's an ambivalent mode. It, 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 it feels like it ends, like the last 20 minutes of the film are pretty celebratory given everything we witnessed thus far. And I think that, I didn't think about this the first time I saw the movie because I was too focused on how to my mind, the characters who lost the most and who were damaged the most were all female characters Mm -hmm. in the movie. And I thought that was interesting. And it was something that wasn't, it was like the movie wasn't marketed that way. It wasn't, it wasn't ostensibly about how um, obsession with wealth or certain strains of neoliberal feminism can be damaging. Instead, it was more about like a general obsession with wealth that cuts across race, that cuts across nation, um, age, all sorts of things. So at the end, I feel like the solution that she suggests is like, you know, the family. So for example, the, um, the Icelandic banker who is also kind of adorable, like fishing his son and, you know, he lost everything, but actually he really didn't lose everything because he's still being filmed in his 
I don't know, modern architecture house, like with a functioning indoor fountain and sauna. Um, And he's, you know, yeah, there's these scenes of him, you know, back in the water, on the boat, fishing with his son. And, And there's such wholesome images like back to the family. This is how we get away from this. And I, I guess I don't, I don't trust any of that. I don't trust what is basically a nuclear family montage at the end. I feel like it was almost a way for Lauren Greenfield to diffuse that ambivalence. I mean, I don't want to project that psychologically onto her, but at the same time, it feels like she's obviously she's torn and this is a way that she can kind of reassure herself and reassure her viewers that, oh, well, if you're a good mom or you're a good spouse, um, you know, you can somehow reorient the next generation to have better values or to be more aware of the fact that money is not the solution. But I wasn't just, I just wasn't confident that any of the, the kids featured really had internalized that. Right. And it didn't seem like there was, um, I mean, with the sort of the the family, yeah, hallmark moment, as, as you sort of called it at the end of the at the end of the film, um, it wasn't none of those people were sort of struggling, right? Like none of them were, were having to come together as a family under great economic hardship they were all pretty much doing okay um so the the sort of pursuit of wealth was never about just trying to get to a place of stability or break you know generations of poverty um mm-hmm. or something it, it was just kind of rich kids um being raised within wealthy environments and being dead inside it and so on um so this idea that yeah because you know, if you if you sort of look um, at the statistics of you know who's getting married, who's not getting married, right? Like it, it's um, it's still middle class and upper middle class people who can have families essentially that, that have marriages that last, um, that can have children and and support them. Um, and lower class people uh, or have a harder time finding spouses and so on. Um, So yeah, it just seemed really in that way of, and I hate, you know, I hate the term white feminism, but (laughs) it, it, it does seem it kind of infected with the same sort of, um, you know, Gloria Steinem, Madeleine Albright, Hillary Clinton, like that oh, yeah. kind of thing that took over um, during the sure. last election. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think there's a way that Lauren Greenfield, I mean, make no mistake, I enjoy her films overall. Like I, if he makes another film, I'll probably go see it. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, and I think that in some ways, I mean, the sad part also is that there are so few, I mean, there are more female documentary filmmakers for sure than narrative feature filmmakers, but there are still so few that if any filmmaker, any female filmmaker is really developing her own kind of signature style, it's of interest to me, even if I don't embrace everything about it. I think that there's something, I don't know, she has her, she has what she does. Like she's doing it again and again. I don't think she did it as well in Generation Wealth, but I do think she has 
she does have a fantastic ability to capture like gross ironies and tragedies, I think, in what's going on with uh, money culture, what's going on for women. I mean, one of the things you said that reminded me of this is like why I was thinking, why is why is Queen of Versailles a superior film? Why is it better? And at first I thought, oh, it's because, you know, she's not as much a part of it, which is maybe a little bit of a reason. But I also think that it's precisely because we see the Seagulls, Jackie and David Siegel, who built the or tried to build the biggest house in America, we kind of we we see how everything starts to fall apart. And, you know, like there's dog shit on the ground that's not getting picked up. And there's this, you know, dereliction in the domestic space because there's not there's so many kids and there's this unruly sense that pervades the whole last 20 minutes of that movie where you see how, you know, things are falling apart here. This is not, you know, and and even even if you have a kind of detachment from Jackie and David because you don't share their values. I feel especially with Jackie, there's something really likable about her. So even though she's clueless, um, seeing how um, her own marriage was basically a way to maintain her cluelessness or a way to keep her from actually knowing what's going on financially in the family. Um, just I think that there's something important about seeing the fact that this obsession with wealth has really serious consequences. And that's a lot clearer in Queen of Versailles. It's not really that clear in Generation Wealth in terms of how that movie ends, where everyone's kind of okay. I mean, in Queen of Versailles, there's, I mean, I I haven't checked in to see where the seagulls are now, but it seemed like everything, you know, the house, all of that stuff they had was was, um, either seized by the banks or, you know, sitting around somewhere in Florida. Um, yeah. So I think that there's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think films need to moralize and I don't think that film does moralize, but Queen of Versailles that is, but I feel like it does a better job, um, nailing the really uneasy, unhealthy relationship to wealth that many Americans have and, um, how it's dangerous or can be really dangerous. Um, yeah, I have a hard time with uh, narratives and narratives about money, about showing the dark side of money, like in the way of like the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's supposed to be like, oh, look at how terrible all these people are um, that seem to be having a, an immensely good time. Right. Like, I, I know that it's morally empty. I know that it's... Um, uh, sort of uh, ethically unjustifiable. I, I get it, but it looks like they're having a good time. And it, it, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I felt that way with Generation Wealth too. Of um, unless it was the plastic surgery sort of um, uh, horror story or the porn star horror story, um, everybody else seemed to be. Um, having a good time but also like those two stories within generation wealth the 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 porn star and um the and I I'm sorry that I am so terrible with names that I I can't remember either of their names um uh yeah so both of them are people that don't come from money striving to 
to get money or to have acquire something that generally uh, comes with money that um, like the plastic surgery, but she doesn't actually have the money to get it. But if, you know, if she had the wealth, then it wouldn't have ruined her life in the, in the same way. Um, and there's something kind of, I don't know, um, condemning um, of these two women for, for trying for something that um, they don't, they didn't come into or they don't deserve or something. The people that are just sort of like naturally, you know, are born into money or they work in finance or whatever, they come to it in the, in these sort of, um, they earn it in a way. Like they sort of get off more lightly, um, than, than the other, than the other way. Right. I mean, when I think about it, those two characters, the Casey character who's Courtney, when she goes back to Oregon, that's her original name. Um, and then um, Kathy, who got all the plastic surgery, I mean, actually, both of them, I think, end up get, going bankrupt because of plastic surgery. And both of them are impoverished at the end. I mean, Casey's working at the tanning salon, making minimum wage. She's living with her family again. And, you know, she, I think she lost like her 11th or 12th pregnancy. I mean, they didn't clarify 100% there, but it just seemed like those narratives that are of either working class or lower middle class women who have this real hunger for a certain type of, of um, I mean, this image of success really in, in Kathy's case are punished a lot more. And I do think, you know, there's a way that, yeah, there's a way that um, this, there's a way that hedonism, I think, I think is conflated with wealth accumulation and money that is maybe too easy in the film because I agree like a lot of the scenes like I don't know like the Atlanta Magic City uh stripper scenes it they really did look kind of fun I mean if you you just completely I kind of wanted to go I (laughs) I mean I felt I felt that tug as well. Um, and, and I think that, I think that also the kind of, um, unapologetic, uh, hedonism in the shots of magic city. I enjoyed, like there was something fun about it. And it was also what, what I, what I like about Lauren Greenfield is that she's good about not moralizing in certain ways that I think a lot of directors or a lot of documentaries, uh, do, but at the same time, like we don't really, we didn't follow any of those strippers back to, you know, to their homes in Atlanta to find out what their lives are like, because I don't think they fit the tidy narrative that takes over the last 20 minutes of Generation Wealth, which is a narrative of very safe affluence that can endure despite, you know, financial hardships or whatever the situation it may be. Um, and I think it's, I don't know, there's the, I like what you said earlier about how in some ways like Lauren Greenfield having this career and having the husband and the 20 year marriage or 30 year marriage, whatever it was, and the two kids in some ways, like that's its own type of wealth. Um, and that's its own type of, I don't know, uh, feminist dream of a certain variety where even though Lauren Greenfield 
says, oh, I don't really have it all, or it's really hard to have it all, really, at the end of the day, the end of the movie, she kind of has it all. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, in terms of in terms of that image, and it's not really problematized. It's just presented as, yeah, you know, I'm very successful, and my eldest just got a perfect score in the ACT or whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, there's not really. It doesn't. I don't know. It's hard because I feel like in a movie like that, if it had been focused on everyone's undoing at the end, it would have felt moralizing in the other direction. Um, but I feel like she could have ended in a more ambivalent way um, or just removed herself and not tried to make the movie about her own wrestling with her demons. Because I don't think, I just don't think it works as much. Well, I don't think she was actually wrestling with her demons. Right. I, I think that she was very interested in presenting herself as um um uh not the hero but certainly as you know the parallel that she was trying to make with the 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 people that she had been photographing for, for all of these years was that she too wanted more but that was work she wanted more work yeah which yeah. is like that humble brag thing of um you know i'm just i'm just so ambitious like i don't know i don't know what to do about it my ambition you know to just be so good like you know mm-hmm. um that that whole aspect of it um and also like the weird sort of score settling stuff with her mother you know i feel like there was a kind of score settling throughout the movie that was happening that i that i didn't really understand like with between her and the people that she had been depicting between her and her mother um between her and her family and also between her and her audience like it was almost this kind of thing of um um maybe because she hadn't been as much of a name as some of sort of uh, her male counterparts, like wanting to insert herself into the story and in this sort of like, this is what I've spent my career doing, like to, to make the retrospective because nobody else had done it instead. Um, maybe I'm projecting too much into it, but some of it felt like that, like this sort of unearned, like this is my, um, this is what I've done my, made my career on. Um, except for it didn't quite, it never kind of cohered into something. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's because, no, that's really insightful. The score settling aspect, because it, it does creep in quite a bit. And I guess when I was seeing Russell's with her demons, I, I guess the only ones I feel like she really, at least it's somewhere in the film, it feels like is this idea that she wasn't a good enough mom or that she wasn't around enough. And she asks her kids about it and they obviously have some issues with it. And she starts to feel bad about not being there enough for her kids. But then ultimately I don't really feel like that. I I feel like that it doesn't really turn into anything. It's not like a, there's no sense of reckoning, I guess that would come more with wrestling with one's demons. And then with the score settling, I think that, um, there's this way that, so for example, like we see an image of her, uh, pumping like something like 300 ounces of breast milk or something like that before she goes to China. 
And like, we get this image and the implication is, okay, she did it. Like there's all the milk. Now she's in China. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's yeah, this, she earned there's, it. Yeah. She earned it. She did it all. Like, like she, she's tired. She looks tired. She's moving around all the time. Like she's going from room to room. She like, there's, there's this sense that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like in the film, she's, mm-hmm. um, she's kind of, a. Uh, a kinetic presence in terms of, okay, this is, this is how much I'm hustling. I feel like that is kind of the backdrop. And ultimately, you know, that's, that is, I don't want to say it's self-congratulatory because I don't feel like I a hundred percent think that it is, but I think that there are aspects that are, and if it's not self-congratulatory, I feel like it's, it's, there's a way that I think implicitly there's a patting on the back for like, Oh, having found this great guy in college who supported me and my ambitions and, you know, and having these great kids and all of this stuff. And a lot of that stuff is connected to privilege. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's a lot of reckoning with privilege. Like she, she mentions the fact that she grew up in this, you know, wealthy environment, but at the same time, and this is something that often annoys me is, so many people, when they talk about the wealthy neighborhood or school district that they grew up in, they're so quick to emphasize the fact that like their house was one of the smaller ones on the block or, or the, my friends were afraid to visit me because I lived in Venice or, you know, we didn't have the same types of clothes. We didn't have the same types of car. And I mean, I get that, but I kind of feel like that, that rush to immediately clarify, Oh no, 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 no. I'm not actually the wealthy bad guy. It feels, I don't know, all too revealing um, because it's, it's like there's a weird way. I was thinking about how even our language, and uh, I don't know if these phrases are popular outside of the United States, but the dirt poor versus the filthy rich. Like mm-hmm. we, we have this way that we describe wealth in terms of, of actually being dirty or actually being, I don't know, physically tarnished and those who are from privilege are often really quick to just be like, Oh no, 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 I'm not, I'm not that. And I'm relatable, but I don't know from what I saw, she had basically, I mean, two, her both parents were academics, I think, or, or her mom was an academic and she went to Harvard. Her dad went to Harvard. It seemed like a real legacy family of, uh, hyper achievement. Um, which of course comes with pressures of its own, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, we never get, we never see like Lauren Greenfield, like work a job because she needs the money to get through college or to pay off her college loans or anything like that. Like, which is the reality for like the vast majority of, of people. So I don't know. I'm kind of, there's a way that privilege and her own privilege is diffused throughout the movie and that score settling becomes part of it in a way that feels um a little too easy i think yeah and i see this a lot in sort of um women's culture right now of having been sort of invisible or marginalized and so wanting to make yourself like visible, but in in a way where you control the version of it. Right. Um, And so, yeah, positioning herself as both um, um, the good mother 
and the hard worker and the I don't know like the the faux hard scrabble narrative um <laughs> and you know and I think that there was an awareness of um having grown up in LA to to academic parents who both went to Harvard and and so on wasn't sympathetic enough so it, portraying the mother as sort of uh distant and not nurturing enough and and so on was was part of that controlling the narrative like um but at the same time like the thing that I wanted to watch immediately after this and and I did watch it with it I, I turned generation wealth off and then watched um louder than bombs do you know this movie the Joachim Trier um film with Isabel Huppert um, where she plays a photographer who has ambivalence about being uh, a wife and mother and also a photographer uh, who ha- who goes away a lot of the time um, and really sort of struggles and reckons with it of um, being an ambitious woman who also wants love and so on, which was so much more interesting and and gritty and fascinating than than generation wealth and i sort of watched it immediately after to sort of compensate for what i had been looking for i think it's i mean probably it's because isabelle Huppert, even when playing a fictional character still seems more real yeah than lauren greenfield <laughs> playing herself you know i mean she's she has this i haven't seen that movie but i, I definitely need to um she's i mean isabelle Huppert is really good at showing in without with just facial expressions with the way she moves her body with the real subtleties of acting how one can be extremely um torn between different types of desires and different types of sorrows and fears and all of that and i think that that's i mean i don't mean to be too mean about lauren greenfield because i think i think that the movie maybe was too ambitious in trying to be about both her own trajectory and be about the culture at large, because I don't know if they're really as synonymous as they are made out to be in the end. Um, But I do think that the way she appears in that movie is very much like a woman who's, you know, grappling to just make everything happen. And she does like, even when her son is, She's like proofreading his French from her iPhone on the streets of China or something like that. It's it's like we get these scenes that, you know, she really is a good mom. She really does care. And she has these moments with her kids that show that it's all fine. Um, and yeah, I feel like <laughs> I need to see that movie now because I, I think with Isabelle Huppert, there's always the sense that no, things are not all fine. <laughs> you know, like there's that, 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 that sense is always looming. You know, no, there's just, there's no scene or shot where it's not, where it it comes across, oh yeah, everything's great, you know, which is refreshing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and all, as she sort of makes clear in, in Generation Wealth, you know, her project has always been sort of um, privilege and wealth, but without, um, um, examining her own place in it or you know even sort of thin 
um, you know, anorexia being the sort of eating disorder of privileged white girls for the most part, right? Like it's a it's an upper class disorder to have. You you have anorexia within enough food for you to refuse to eat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, being able to sort of look at that and and in a way like anorexia being part of the dark side of affluence um because it is some is a sort of disorder that comes out of um these sort of powerful families these the the girl children of these powerful families um and controlling families um but yeah like her sort of reluctance to look at her own position in that um, and why she's fascinated by that. Um, you know, it works so much better in, right, in Thin and Queen of Versailles where, where she's not directly a part of the narrative. I mean, if you're going to make yourself part of the narrative, then you have to, I mean, you have to do the work. You can't just sort of like... Yeah. Uh, film yourself at a flattering angle all of the time when you're filming everybody else at the most unflattering angle possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's, that's part of it. I think there's also within what I thought was good about it. I know this was not like a major part of it, but there was some sense that financial limitations for some of the young women um, in the treatment center, the financial limitations were the reason why they were being jettisoned from treatment like before they were ready and how like the financial constraints and the healthcare system could end up being um, like, this is, this this is here for those with the money and for those without the money, you can't stay long or you can't stay until you're ready to leave, whatever that means. Um, And so I felt like there was still a kind of nod in that movie to some level of socioeconomic discrepancy and how I think that, I think that's maybe the problem is that, um, with Generation Wealth as well, that we have, I think it's Chris Hedges, the the journalist who's like one of the talking heads in the movie. He says these huge abstract academic things about the decline of capitalism and and how capitalism works and how it's treating everything as a commodity, et cetera. It's kind of like, I felt like it was kind of like, I don't know, intro to Marxism light, like yeah. a, very light version of that. And so, but he's at some remove. He's speaking in this like soft lit library office with all these books behind him. And so it's really easy watching the movie, I think, to abstract the fact that all the stuff he's saying is is manifested in actual policy going on in our own time. And there's, I think, a way that, that Lauren Greenfield's films, or at least Generation Wealth, kind of... Um, I don't know if it necessarily depoliticizes the situation, but it's almost kind of like there's this like, I don't know, there's a gesture towards, oh, here's the systemic problems that are the reasons for this. But I'm not going to actually dig into the power of uh, the state or the power of public pressures towards achieving this type of life or like what happens if you don't make this amount of money or if you don't do this or, or like essentially like the absence of a safety net in the United States. Um, like what, there's not a lot of like real examination of that. It's very, um, I feel like 
her projection of her own personal narrative onto the story depoliticizes it even more. And so it doesn't have a kind of bite at the end. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that it would have been hard to do, but would have been really great to do is show how these big abstractions from this guy sitting in a library actually translate rather than just expecting the audience to put two and two together. Because I just think it's, I don't know, it's really easy to kind of throw a Frisbee out to, oh, capitalism is bad. Like that idea. Um, yeah. I mean, it feels like a very, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure I'm guilty of doing it as well. But at the same time, I feel like a film like this that's focused on wealth accumulation could have could have, I guess, clarified that this wealth accumulation and obsession with wealth is actually, I think, inverse to like the household financial solvency of any American family or any American individual. You know, like we're not actually wealthier. <laughs> right. And the way that she sort of sets up the ending, it makes it look like this is a choice. Like either you can choose wealth accumulation or you can choose family life <laughs> exactly, exactly. and it's just like no actually they're the same thing like all the families that you're showing have financial solvency that was either gifted to them or inherited or earned but also earned through a means that was definitely bankrolled through being born into certain levels of privilege so there's not really like it's it's like presented as an either or but actually it's the same because you don't see like, you know, Gmo is talking about his daughter going off to Cornell and getting full scholarship and, you know, sure. That's great. But you know, he's got this big flat screen television in the background. He looks like he's, you know, doing well. And I think he's working in real estate or something doing financially well. And there's this sense that everybody has um, everything they need. And that's not the reality for most families in the United States. Um, and I think that that's part of, what feels kind of empty at the end of the movie is because it doesn't, there's no sense of how this relationship or obsession with wealth is in any way connected to larger systems of power um, in a real way. It's just, it's completely abstracted in the movie. Um, and I don't know, I find myself, my students do this a lot too. I mean, I teach at one of the richest research universities in the world and most of my students come from really privileged backgrounds. And when someone's 18 or 19 years old, I don't, I'm not nearly as, I guess, judgmental in terms of what they know or what they don't know, because I feel like part of my job is to, to teach them. But at the same time, um, there is a lot of kind of, I don't know, very uh, anti-capitalist sentiment that's extremely abstracted. Mm -hmm. Um, and has, and it's, it's deeply ironic when, uh, when one considers the amount of how the, how, what students are saying they believe or they ascribe to is in like diametrical opposition to the systems through which their families thrived. And like the reason why most of them can afford to go to school like that. So I'm, yeah, I'm. I don't know. I feel like that's that's another thing I, could, I should look for in films is how many films kind of gesture to this anti-capitalist sentiment, but don't really abstract it so much that it's it feels safe or it feels cozy. Like you don't actually have to change the way you live 
Um, which is the same problem with neoliberal feminism because it just encourages women to do the things that, that men do or that everyone's encouraged to do to be successful in terms of uh, financial achievement, property, all that kind of stuff. And it's not really about um, what's good for women on the whole rather than you know, what's good for me. And I thought that Queen, the Queen of Versailles was so much smarter about all of this, um, especially in the way of sort of using Jackie's beauty um, and her sort of journey of uh, using that through, um, you know, pageants and plastic surgery and, and modeling and all of this in order to sort of attain uh, wealth via a romantic partner right like Mm -hmm. um and understanding that and not being unsympathetic to it as well like it wasn't just sort of wholly condemning of um of her it was understanding while also being you know um understanding the privilege of that position um but it didn't seem like that sort of level of understanding was sort of granted to people in, in generation wealth. And I'm not sure what the difference was. Um, although I did see, I did notice like the little cameo that the Seagulls made in generation wealth at the, at the Trump rally. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a very, I think with what, what I enjoyed about Jackie Siegel also in Queen of Versailles is that she, she talks about how she went to, I think university or the, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology to, I think, become a computer engineer and was working at IBM. And so, like, she had her own, she, she had originally privileged um, her own knowledge and ability to work in this field. Um, and then decided, no, 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 this is not the way to do what I want to do with my life. I'm going to be stuck in a cubicle. So, I'm going to move down to Florida and, you know, enter the pageant circuitry and all that stuff. And I, I feel like the, it's, she's a, she's an interest, she's a round character. I mean, to use a fiction term, she's a round character. And I feel like the fact that she has likable aspects to her is really important. Um, because if, she, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's also a much more disquieting film. Um, and, you know, to see someone like that who across, you know, a 90 minute or two hour film, you start to develop uh, a, a type of fondness for or at least empathy for. And then also see in Generation Wealth, oh, there she is at a Trump rally. There's, you know, this is like, there's a complete, what I think that I almost found humorous in Generation Wealth, or not Generation Wealth, in Queen of Versailles is how Jackie doesn't seem to make any real connections between all the thousands of people who lost their jobs at her husband's company and the way she lives her life. Like she feels sad about it, but she feels sad about it the same way someone might feel sad um, to hear about some kind of natural disaster destroying a village far, far away. Like there's no sense of, oh, well, my behavior might actually be connected to this or my consumption might actually be connected to this it's it's totally removed and it was that was really um incisive i think in terms of that film to show how you could be so close to this and still not see how your own way of living and and your husband's business practices can devastate 
thousands of people. Um, you know, so there's a, I don't know that the fact that she could be so disconnected is, is awful, but I feel like, I feel like that's true of so many people all the time. And it's definitely true of me too. I don't, I'm, I've definitely, I think one of the things I like about Lauren Greenfield's films is that they do sometimes, sometimes they nudge me to consider how, um, I guess acquiescent or, um, accommodating I can be of some of the same fallacies, I guess, um, specifically with neoliberal feminism. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write about generation wealth. Um, it's because I felt like a lot of my own definition as, uh, or self definition as a feminist was really shaped by a third wave neoliberal strain. And I guess it's only really in the last five years, maybe that I've started actively, um, interrogating that. Um, but just equating property ownership or, um, a certain level of job with like basically being a feminist accomplishment because I did it, you know? And the fact is that's not, I don't know, like, I don't think that that's the case anymore. I'm much more, um, I guess, self-scrutinizing about whether or not something I do is feminist just because it's, I did it, you know, like that's, when I think about how selfish and how self-serving so many of my choices have been, that just can't be the case. (laughs) (laughs) It's just just not possible. (laughs) So, yeah, I remember sort of someone giving me a copy of, you know, like reviving Ophelia, Mm. um, where it's sort of, I guess maybe I was 20 years old or something. and, And I don't know. So a lot of Lauren Greenfield's work sort of, um, on sort of quote-unquote feminist issues reminds me of that kind of feminism of you know we need to empower girls stuff like um like the i guess it was like a super bowl ad that she did with um always oh yeah Um, i remember that yeah hashtag like like a girl yeah yeah that was Um, yeah um and then some stuff she's done about beauty culture the damaging effects of beauty culture like it's it's very much that that kind of attitude of um how society sort of warps girls without looking into you know what society is made of (laughs) which is like 50 percent women like how self-serving some of these sort of things are and how maintained by women a lot of these things are um but it's always like this sort of abstract thing that's happening to us that society you know with the capital s is doing to us um uh and that sort of, yeah, relinquishes you from any sort of taking responsibility for the way that you respond to that. I mean, it's yeah. part of the, I mean, I know that you've written about this, like the, the, the reluctance to think about one's own participation in oppressive structures versus um, just focusing on the way that women are victimized. And I mean, I remember reviving Ophelia really well from when I was a teenager and I remember reading it and just thinking it was a, a total joke because it didn't apply to me. Like I didn't feel like, yeah, no, me either. <laughs> I didn't feel, I feel like the exact same time I was supposed to be like in Ophelia phase, I guess, like looking beautiful and drowning in a pond with a bunch of flowers piled on top of me. I was actually like finding my voice and like joining a band and like getting angry. And I don't know, like making out with boys. Like I just, I just didn't feel like, <laughs> I I felt really resentful of that book because I felt like it generalized the female adolescent experience as 
one of necessary victimization yeah. and, and self-loathing. And I didn't really experience, I mean, the self-loathing actually came in grad school. I mean, it was delayed for me, um, <laughs> but there, there was no, but, but I feel like that sentimental narrative of, I mean, Ophelia is a fantastic way to kind of inject a literary icon into it. But there is that way that like girlhood or troubled girlhood and solving the problem of troubled girlhood becomes a solution that I think is really problematic because I think that the, well, on a, num- on a number of levels, like, I mean, even the fact that like, this isn't always commercial for the Super Bowl. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that tells you a lot of what you need to know. Like it reminds me of, it's really similar to the whole Dove beauty ad campaign, like where you buy this product and it says like pro age. And the whole point of the product is to make you look younger. Yeah. But it's somehow pro age. And it's like, <laughs> no, like this is absolutely not pro aging. And if it was, no one would ever buy it ever. No, I would never be like, Oh, I, I can't wait to look 10 years older tomorrow. Let's put this. <laughs> like, I just can't like, let's see the future in the mirror. No. Oh, no one it just but and yet these campaigns and this rhetoric is really really seductive it's so seductive and i fall for it all the time so i'm like i mean i criticize it but i think i'm also just i'm willing to be in a space where i can be aware of and, and scrutinize things that i'm i know i I've, I've been affected by and i know that to a certain extent i've sub- subscribed to um and so with um with generation wealth i mean I do feel like there are ways that in, I don't know, not as extreme, of course, as many of the characters that she follows, but I definitely um, exploited my appearance, especially when I was waiting tables and in the service industry. And that was definitely a way to like make more money. And at the time that was really all I cared about. Um, And, you know, there's, I think there's also what's hard is that, for so many women, like financial solvency can feel like the only way to be independent of patriarchy, but actually you're not really independent. You're just dependent on a different type of patriarchal control, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's something that's really hard to see, like that freedom in terms of, oh, having your own space or having your own car or having your own bank account. Okay, that's that, that's one type of freedom, but that doesn't mean you are somehow like liberated from like the broader macro problems, like you're relying on them, you know? So I don't know. It's, um, that's something that obviously generation wealth doesn't really, (laughs) (laughs) doesn't really examine. Um, and I don't think Lauren Greenfield's going to anytime soon. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.